0: What a beautiful thing to be ending the year singing that amazing name of Jesus. I mean, there's nobody like Him. Nobody as wonderful as He is. Nobody as kind, as just and truthful. He'll always treat you right. He's amazing. Name means God saves, what a great name to sing of, what a glorious thing to be doing. You know, what happens in, when we do this week by week is no surprise here at The Journey. It's part of the reason why we just love being with you guys, so that we can do that kind of stuff. And, and it just kind of just kind of fills us and, and just kind of makes, uh, makes life kind of reorients us to, to what life's all about, you know. But there have been times, you know, when I've been involved in the life of churches in various places, either as a visitor or as a a permanent resident, so to speak, where I've been kind of surprised by the level of worship, by a high level of worship. I was thinking, for example, I went to the second uh, men's conference, a national men's conference, sponsored by a ministry called Promise Keepers. Some of you old guys may have been involved in that in the past. Its successor locally has been iron sharpens iron. Um, But in any event, I remember going to the Colorado Buffaloes football stadium, and there were 27,000 guys. And that was pretty amazing, but I wasn't expecting much from the worship. Because frankly, in most churches I've been in, you know, usually it's the women who are kind of, you know, doing this kind of stuff, you know, and the worshiping God. And guys are kind of, you know, you are the one that we... Da, na, na, na. A little different here, a little different here. But, so I was thinking, you know, ain't going to be much. Well, the band cranks up, and my gosh, it was like, woof! We're on our feet. There were platform, a kind of um, uh, plywood that was underneath our feet to protect the uh, the, the astroturf, and we're bouncing around. the tur- you know, It was just kind of moving like this. I remember a couple of years later going to RFK Stadium in Washington, D.C., where the Redskins play, and there was a whole section of seats that I thought was going to break. Just it was bouncing because the guys were just jumping up and down. I mean, it was so surprising, so surprising what happened when a bunch of guys who love Jesus came together. It was amazing. Amen. Another opportunity, I remember going to a retreat that was sponsored by a ministry called Exodus International that ministered to people who were dealing with kind of sexual brokenness in their lives. Either they'd had things done to them or they'd gotten into things where they got confused about who they were, uh, as male and female, and so on. And, and, you know, these are people in deep pain. And, uh, again, I was thinking, you know, when it came to a time when we were going to, sing and worship God in musically that I thought, you know, oh, well, they'd probably be pretty reserved. Oh, oh my gosh, couldn't have been further from true. These people worship God as if their lives depended upon it, and the fact was it really was true. Their lives depended uh, on worshiping God because if they weren't giving themselves to Him, they were in huge trouble. And then the third was, I was once in Phoenix. I was there to do a conference, a Christian conference, and um, a bunch of us decided to go to a Roman Catholic church. And my experience sometimes of being in traditional churches like that, including one that I was involved with, is that when you go, you know, it's kind of like the team up front is all excited and and so on, but then the congregation is kind of, you know... Half-baked, well, sheepers, creepers. The the priest goes like this. He says, the Lord be with you. And they went, and also with you. You know, it's kind of like, whoa. I I wasn't even used to that in my own church. You know, they had their hands moving around and they're singing the songs and so on. It was so exciting, such a surprise um, to to be in a worship setting there. So, you know, never never kind of underestimate what God can do, you know, when you show up with people who want to worship him. But there's a circumstance, a situation in the Bible that is really, really most surprising of all. It's the story that we're going to hear today of the Magi, those that we normally call the wise men, who come from the east to Jerusalem asking this question, where's the one who has been born king of the Jews for we've come to worship him? Now this story marks the conclusion of our Advent and now Christmas message series called The Unlikely Advent or Coming of Jesus Christ. And we looked at a number of unlikely parts of that story and we're finishing with the unlikely story of these people arriving to worship Jesus. As with me and those men at the Christian conference or those people on retreat or those folks in that church gathered to worship, One might have thought that these magi would be the last people who would want to come to worship Jesus. But they are what we're going to call the unlikely worshipers who model for us actually what it means to be a true worshiper of Jesus Christ. So I want to pray that the Holy Spirit will come this last day of the calendar year and that he might kind of draw out of us a desire to become a true worshiper. So Holy Spirit, I invite you to come. I thank you that uh, you've made a promise in the word of God that when two or three are gathered together in the name of Jesus, that he's here. And so, Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would draw out from us a hunger and a desire to become more of a worshiper in the year ahead. I pray that we would uh, just... Find our hearts stirred and maybe some information conveyed to us in such a way that we actually believe that we can worship you with more than we've ever ever given to you before. So come, Lord, and make that possible to the glory of God the Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. You can look it up uh, in your, uh, the, the Bible that's in front of you or whatever you've brought with you to go there. You may want to follow along, but we go through it verse by verse. Uh, what page is it on in the, in the Bibles that are here? It's listed in the leaflet. 681, 682, something like that. Okay, so check it out. By the way, if you're new to the Bible, just always go to the table of contents, you know, Sort of, we sort of think we ought to know our way around that book. You don't need to. Just go to this table of contents. It always helps. So anyway, um, let's look at it here. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, and they asked, Where's the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star appeared. Then he sent in the Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may too come and worship him. Well, after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So let's take a look at the story a little bit closely And as we're doing this, we're going to do a little bit of separation of them from the popular legends that we have about who they are. So they're described in verse 1 as magi from the east. Now, traditionally, we call them wise men. But there's nothing to suggest that there might not have been women among them, particularly in that they went on a very long journey. They were wealthy, as we'll see, probably brought the family with them. And they came from the east, from probably Persia, and they were probably part of a caste system of Persian priests who were followers of Zoroaster, who was a prophet who lived in about 1000 BC. Now the religion of Zoroaster exalts a supreme being, one God, supreme God who is wisdom. And there's also in Zoroastrian thinking the idea that God would come to earth and that he would begin to set things right and separate people, some to go to heaven and some to go to not so good a place. So there are some parallels, in a sense, between what we believe from the scripture and what they believed. A lot of differences, but some parallels. But it's pretty clear they didn't believe in the God of Israel, but yet they were coming to worship the King of the Jews. It's fascinating. Now, they, they, they traveled for 700 miles, and they were wealthy, therefore, to be able to do such a journey, but they didn't let their wealth get in the way, because if you've ever checked out the Bible, you realize that if you're wealthy, it's a dangerous thing to have. It usually becomes an object of your worship. And in fact, everybody in this room, or almost everybody in this room, that's our situation when compared to the rest of the world. We are the wealthy of this world. We are the one percenters when it comes to the world as a, at large. And our wealth often prevents us from giving ourselves fully to God. But they didn't hold anything back. They gave those gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And verse 2 says that they saw his star. Where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when, when it rose. That's funny. I mean, they saw the star, but I guess nobody else did, or at least nobody noticed anything. Well, that was because they were astrologers. They saw something in the skies, and that something led them to believe in their interpretive system that this meant that there was a king who was born to the west in Israel. We don't exactly know what they were thinking. Johannes Kepler, who was a Christian astronomer, thought that what this star was was a conjunction of planets, including Jupiter. Most modern astronomers think that probably was not the case. So there's a lot of questions about what this was. Was it only for them? Were they the only ones to see it? Was it a supernatural phenomenon? Was it a natural phenomenon? But whatever it was, it led them to go to Jerusalem to see the king of the Jews. And they figure, well, if there's a king, it's got to be in Jerusalem. Now, this kind of thing apparently happened, or at least it was reported to have happened, uh, the arrival of a special star at the birth of Caesar Augustus and uh, Alexander the Great. But in any event, here it is. They arrive and they say, we've come to worship him. Now the word they use is worship here is to bow down, fall down, prostrate themselves, meaning to be flat on the floor, and somewhere along the way to kiss the hand of the person that they're falling before. And again, nobody in Israel was worshiping this little Jesus, except for a few shepherds and what are they anyway, they're kind of lowlife as we saw in those days. So this is a posture of worship. In fact, in modern Islam, if you've seen pictures of people worshiping in I- Islam, they fall down on their knees, they bow, they put their, their foreheads to the ground as a sign of respect and worship to Allah. And you know, it's interesting, this is a church that doesn't have kneelers. We don't do that, but, you know, just, that's okay, but why not, you know? Well, we don't kneel to anybody. Well, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. anyway, because it's the posture of heaven. It's the posture of heaven. You know, the elders up in heaven, what are they doing? Falling on their faces before the one who is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I mean, in a sense, it's a posture that we might need to get used to. Just saying. Just saying. So these worshipers of another god were coming to Jerusalem. They were expecting to find the newborn king of the Jews. They were unlikely worshipers. At least they were starting to become worshipers of Jesus. Now along the way, they met another unlikely worshiper, quote unquote, King Herod. Now Herod's an interesting character. Herod the Great was a non-Jew. He'd been appointed by the Roman Senate. Rome controlled the world then. He'd been appointed by the Senate to be the king of Judea. And he was despised and hated, not only because he was the Roman puppet, but because he was a ruthless and paranoid leader. For example, for political gain, he murdered his own wife, he murdered his sons, he murdered his in-laws, his uncles, and many others. Have a nice day, said Herod. And so at the news of a newborn king in verse 3, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him because he was paranoid about his position. Any despot is always paranoid, including if you're a despot in your own home, you're paranoid, but that's another story. He was disturbed, and he was disturbed for good reason, and so was Jerusalem, because this had become a great city under Herod's leadership. He had built up all the buildings. This backwater place had become quite something under Herod's leadership, and so, Jerusalem was invested in kind of propping up this paranoid, ruthless leader. And this was news of a rival king. And so Herod knew what he had to do to deal with this threat, so he started working out an evil plan. In verse four, we read that when he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Hmm. He's interested in the stories of the birth of the Messiah. And he went there not because he was a believer in God, because but because He believed in the legend, for him it was a legend, that there was going to come a rival king who was going to take things over for good and that was going to be the end of him. So he wanted to know a little bit about this because it was kind of like, I've heard this story before, I think it's playing out in our time. It's really interesting, isn't it, that evil always seeks to oppose Jesus. It always seeks to annihilate Jesus. There are several times where Jesus is almost killed before he finally suffers and dies at the appropriate time for the sins of the world. And evil, by the way, is always interested to take out a true worshiper of Jesus in one way or another, to distract us, to oppose us, to put stumbling things in our way. So that's what Herod was participating And sometimes it's kind of funny to think about that evil is sometimes more of a worshiper of God than we are. Evil believes in the power of God. James says even the demons believe and they shudder. So the priests and the teachers told Herod and the Magi that the scriptures, particularly the prophet Micah, predicted that the Messiah was going to be born not in Jerusalem, but in little old Bethlehem about six miles southwest of Herod's palace. So now Herod's really obsessed now that he's gotten this news. So he calls the Magi secretly and he finds out from them the exact time the star appeared. He had a plan here. See, he was wanting to find out the exact time, theorizing that whenever that star appeared, that was heralding the birth and that therefore, whatever that time was between then and now was the age of the child that he was going to have to deal with. So verse 8, once he found that out, he sent them to Bethlehem. He said, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me. Oh, so that I too may go and worship him. He hatched this plan. He wanted to worship Jesus. And he did in terms of respecting the threat that the Messiah is and was to any despot, human or demonic. But really, he wasn't worshiping Jesus, of course. He was worshiping the oldest God in the book. You know who that is? It's the fake self. You know, you've heard of fake news? Well, you have inside of you a fake self. It's a self that's been constructed by you and the people around you to kind of match the the way you think you ought to be. And it calls the shots and it makes you do things that you shouldn't be doing because this is how you want to live your life. And it's that fake self that Christ opposes. And in fact, he wants to kill that fake self so that the true you can come forward and you can become the person that God's designed you to be. That's why he died on the cross so that your true self might be liberated from this false despot that lives inside of you. That's what Herod worshipped. So let's take a moment to review How did these Magi get guided to Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, and the Savior of the whole world? Well, first of all, they were guided by the star. They were guided by astrology. In short, by something that happened and their own interpretation of it. A lot of people are guided that way. They sort of, you you notice how everybody sees things happen in threes? You, know, have you ever heard that? You know, there was this and there was this and there was this and that means this, you know. Well, that's what they were doing in their system of astrology. Then later on when they arrived in Jerusalem, they're guided by Herod and the teachers of the people. Notice that phrase, by the way. Teachers of the people. Not necessarily teachers of God, but teachers of the people. They were kind of Herod's people who kind of propped him up with a little bit of religion uh, on the side. Who told them that they should look not in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem. And then they were guided by the scriptures, by the prophet Micah, by the Bible, the word of God. Now they eventually got to the right place going in that order with circumstance and then talking to other people who knew some things and then looking in the Bible. They got to the right place, but in all the wrong ways. You know, sort of like when you were in school and you were given an assignment and you got the right answer and then the teacher says, well, how did you get that? and you show the teacher the work, and they say, you don't know what you're doing here. How'd you get the right answer? You know, And you show some sort of work that has nothing to do with the way to get to the answer, and the teacher may give you some credit because you got the right answer, but marks you off because you don't know what you're doing. Well, that's sort of like these people. They didn't know what they were doing. They're just guided by circumstance because they're not yet true worshipers of God. So I just got to say, this is not the way for you to be guided by the Lord, they did it actually backwards. They start with circumstance, they go to people and then the Bible comes in at the end. No, actually a true worshiper of God is directed in a completely different way. And can I also say something really specific here? There's some of us here who've been grown up looking for other sources for guidance or for power. Some of us here consult astrological charts either in the past or in the present. Others of us here go to, you know, see a a tarot card reader or something like that. Others of us here have attended a seance because we want to get in touch with a dead relative. Others of us have certain spiritual things that we do on the side to give us special knowledge or power. And I just want to say that these guys did that because they didn't know any better, but now you'll know better. That what happens when you do that, when you get open spiritually to some kind of power or whatever it might be that comes over you and gives you this special knowledge or information, there are other kinds of spirits that come along for the ride. They're always looking for an open soul. It's not that folks who do this are, you know, like Satan worshipers, but they're under the influence or can be under the influence. So if you are seeking God through these means, you need to renounce it. Because it's interfering with your being able to hear directly and be guided by God. Okay? Just saying. And if you want to talk to me about that afterwards, I'd be glad to discuss it with you. Because I've done all those things and renounced all those things in my life. You see, true worshipers are guided in exactly the opposite process. They begin with the scriptures. Because the scriptures always lead you to Jesus. Always. They always go to God. That's one thing you can always be sure of. That's why we have them. That's why they're given to us. That's why I have the privilege of holding them in our hands. It's just an amazing deal. And also, they contain about 90% of what you need to know about how you're supposed to live your life. I mean, there's a whole bunch of principles and guidance and examples of how to and how not to live your life. The Scripture says of itself in Psalm 119, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Really amazing. That's why the journey encourages you to get a Bible and to get into it. And we've got materials that can help you to do that. Now, having been directed by the word of God, true worshipers then consult the community of the faithful, the church, to see if what they've understood in the Bible actually kind of seems to match, you know, what's actually there. And so we consult believers in the past who have taught us things about the word of God. We get connected with them. If we see something that's completely brand new that nobody's ever thought of before, we have to at least ask the question, why didn't they see it? And then we talk with people who are living here today, who are our friends in Christ, who are seeking the Lord like we are. And we ask, what do you think I ought to do? Give me some guidance here. Help me to understand how God might like me to operate. That's why Journey encourages you to get involved in a life group. A group of people who are going to walk with you through the highs and lows of your life and going to help you to discern how God would like you to pursue him. Colossians 3.16 says that we're supposed to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And then true worshipers are also guided by prayer as they seek God. Now, some of us approach prayer in a perfectly fine way. And it's kind of all religions do this. We kind of ask God for stuff. And the Bible says if you lack wisdom, you can ask God, and so we can certainly talk to God about that. But there is a way in which we can engage God in terms of learning how to hear Him, because as we seek God in Scripture, in the community of the faithful and in prayer, we can begin to actually hear God speaking to us. Now, it won't necessarily be an audible voice. And in fact, there's a a website and a teacher named Mark Verkler, V-I-R-K-L-E-R, and it's called Four Keys to Hearing God. So Four Keys, look that up sometime. And there's a website that will tell you more about what I'm going to just briefly go over with you now about how you can come to hear God. First of all, you need to be still. To get to a quiet place and be still. Psalm 37 speaks of being still and waiting patiently for the Lord. Some of us don't have times of stillness in our life. We're so busy. We're moving so fast. So a time to be still and then a time to fix what the scripture calls the eyes of your heart on Jesus, to kind of press into Jesus and just kind of, is there anything you want to say to me? It's like the prophet Daniel spoke about how he kept looking and looking and looking for the Lord and then this is really significant this particular description is that when God speaks you will hear a thought coming through your mind it'll just be a thought and it'll be a godly thought and it'll probably be persistent it'll probably be something that you hear over the period of several days and it might come in the form of a dream or it might be a little vision or it might be a word or something like that and you don't yet know what that is that could be just your breakfast burping back up or it could be God Some of you have heard from God recently and you didn't realize it because you thought, well, it had to be a voice or it had to be something, you know, a star in the sky. No, no, no. It can be your own thoughts that God cooperates with. And so then one other thing is suggested is that you write it down. prophet Habakkuk was told to record the vision. And why? Then you can bring it to other people to say, what do you think this is? Because any word that comes from God, whether it's a word in Scripture, which is the word of God, or a word that God brings to you, needs to be interpreted as to what you're supposed to do with it. So anyway, can, can anybody do this? Yes, anybody can do this who's in Christ. How do I know this? Because my seven-year-old grandson is doing this. What you see in front of you is a page from his journal where he's starting to write what God's saying to him. And and underneath is just simply, I don't quite get it, but it's a tree and a mountain and a star that he saw, so he wrote it down. And each of those things said something to him. And there's something going on with Noah where it may well be that God is shaping a prophetic ministry in, in him. Because the other day when he was at church, a woman came and said to him, I think God is calling you to be a prophet. She didn't know anything about this stuff. And so he calls me up. Poppy, do you think God is making a profit out of me? And I said, well, Noah, I I don't know. But why don't you ask God? But I think that might be so. Here's Here's the deal, friends. Some of our children and grandchildren are hearing from God. And we just don't know it unless we kind of coax it out of them and encourage them to say, yes, you can hear God. And we, too, can hear God. As we seek him in prayer. So not only do believers kind of engage God in in scripture and in the community and in prayer like this. But then they might consider the circumstances of their life. Jesus advised us in Matthew 16.3 to read the signs of the times. But we only do that as a last thing. We only do that after we've been steeped in those other realities. So the magi weren't yet true worshipers but they were nonetheless becoming examples for us. But how can that be? You know, they're they're worshiping another God. How can they show us anything about what it means to worship the true God? Well, that really has to do with your view of how God operates in the world. Somebody has come up with two different pictures of how God works in the world. The first is what is called the bounded set view of God. And that is that God hangs out with those who really belong to him, I suppose, like us. That God is for us, and we're in, and those who don't know him, they're out, okay? And God's hanging out with us, but not really with them. But God calls us who are in every once in a while to kind of screw up our courage and to go out And to grab one or two of those people and drag them in so they can be with us and then they're going to be okay, right? And he sends us out into the big bad world where he isn't around and we come in. Now, there's something to commend this view because it is true that once you come into Christ, there is a difference of being in Christ than being out of Christ, okay? But if this is your view of the world, then people like these magi, they're like way out there, And they have nothing to say to us because God's not working with them. Well, that's one view. The second view is what's called the centered set view. And that is that Jesus is at the center of everything and everybody. That there's a place, no place on earth where he is not at work. Now, is he in them? No, unless they have invited him in, in his son Jesus. But he's at work. Are they following him? Not necessarily. Now, the interesting thing, if you look at the diagram closely, you'll see that some of those people are sort of oriented towards him and some are not. And some who are really close, in close proximity, who are very religious, Christianly speaking, might not necessarily have their hearts turned to Jesus. Jesus talked about religious people when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Whereas Jesus also identified people who were really far from God, at least in the eye of religious people, and he would say to them as he did to one of them, you know, you're not far from the kingdom of God. I love that. This is the way God's working, and he's working in the lives of these magi, and they are demonstrating for us what it means to be a seeker and to become a true worshiper of God. This view means that wherever you go, when you go to work tomorrow, when you go to school, when you're in the neighborhood, in your family, whatever it might be, whatever you're planning to do tonight, the Lord's going to be there. And you have the opportunity to perhaps meet somebody who seems really far from God, but you recognize they're on the way. They're turning towards Him. I was one of those people once, way far from God, but turning in for some crazy reason because the tractor beam of the Holy Spirit was drawing me so just a question of how how you see things but we see I see that the gods at work in these unlikely worshipers the magi because they were on their way to becoming true worshipers of Jesus because they were pressing on towards Bethlehem and pressing on towards Jesus look at verse 9 after they heard the king they went on their way And the star they'd seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. The Magi went on their way, and it was becoming God's way. And they were on a mission to find this king, and it was becoming God's mission that Nathan not only would find it, but then they would go back where they lived to bring this great news, not just to Israel, but to the whole world. And in the process, their joy of the search and of seeking him was what has become the mark of true worshipers of God, which is the joy of discovery of more and more about God in Jesus. Now, so then they finally arrived. Verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary. Now, I want you to note something here. That's why you have to read the scripture. Where did they come? What was it? A house. What wasn't it? Stable. They didn't come to a stable. Or a cave. Whatever it was. This didn't happen at Christmas, friends. And notice they didn't see the baby they saw what? The child. This is a whole other story. It started about the same time when the star appeared and when the angels appeared to the shepherds. It just took them a while to get there. Probably a couple of years as we'll see. I hate to break it to you. This doesn't happen at Christmas. Now I know we put it all together and that's fine. Kind of saves time. But this is what happened. It was two years later because that's what Herod found out when he talked with the Wise men, the Magi. Two years ago, the star appeared to us. Took them that time to get their act together and then travel 700 miles by camel with all their people. Takes a while to do those things, okay? All right? Even takes a while to fly. All right. So anyway, they came. Now, some churches note this by celebrating the Feast of the Magi on January 6th, which is called the Feast of the Epiphany, which means the manifestation of Jesus, not just to the Jewish community, but to the whole world, to the Gentiles. That's what they represent for us. And they saw him and came to him before almost anybody did in Israel, except, though a few shepherds, but who are they, you know? And so here they come, and they've bowed down and worship him and they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Friends, that's the essence of true worship right there. They bow before him. He is a superior being. They are on their face before him. And then not only are they doing that religiously and kind of spiritually but then they're just pouring out their gifts. Whatever you want, here it is. Here's the gold. Here's the frankincense. Here's the myrrh. Those were very, very, very costly gifts. And they forked him over to these simple people. They must have been just freaking out by seeing this. It's like, you know, Oprah Winfrey giving away cars at her show. I mean, it's like, what? You know, just amazing. These guys, that, that's true worship. This was not just custom now. This is something else. They present their treasures to him. Sort of like Romans 12 where it says, Beloved, I beseech you to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's your true and proper worship. You see, true worship, it isn't just what we did here a little while ago. You know, we talk about a worship set and a worship team. It's really the whole ball of wax, and it's not just this, too. This is meant to be a rehearsal. This is meant to tune us up. Because what do we come here to do? We come here to bow before the Lord, We take the prime day of the week which is Sunday or Saturday night days of rest and we give it to God. We bring stuff here that we give to God, either through our wallets or through our machines. We give God good resources. We give Him our praise and adoration. We tell Him how wonderful He is. That's meant to be a rehearsal so that we get retuned so that, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do every day. I'm supposed to do that, not in this kind of context. But to give God my time and my money, to give God my attention, my worship, my adoration, to let him direct my life, to let him lead me into loving other people who are around me, that's worship. Whenever we offer ourselves to God 24-7, not just for our sake, but for the sake of the people around us like Magi who are searching for God, they don't know what they're doing, and we might be the example that they need to look at. And so the story concludes in verse 12 with a little more true worship from the Magi and from Joseph, the father, human earthly father of Jesus. Verse 12, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, the Magi returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother. Escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod's going to search for the child to kill him. So what did Joseph do? He got up. He took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt for he stayed until the death of Herod and so was fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet out of Egypt I've called my son. But when Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave order to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had heard from the Magi. Here's the worship. The Magi Get a vision from God, a dream from God that tells them don't go back to Herod. Herod was the ruler of the land. This was risking not to do what the king says. But they had a higher king now and so they left by another route. And then Joseph, he has a dream. God speaks to him and says, you need to get out of there and go where? To Egypt? That was like incomprehensible to him. He'd heard about Egypt in the Bible stories. Never been there in his life. But here's the key. Part of his encouragement to obey and to go where God told him was, he got the gifts. They had the gold, the frankincense and the myrrh. They could trade that and live in a place where they had no family, where they didn't know anybody, where they'd be foreigners and refugees. So off they went. That's worship. When God speaks clearly, you obey and you go. It's an amazing story and you know it's interesting that costly giving like the Magi give that really can change people's circumstances and in fact as was the case with Herod when he decided to commit genocide it could literally save somebody's life your giving of your time and of yourself and of your money to God so here is the point as the new year approaches what would it look like if you and I were to become more of the true worshipers that we've seen described here What would it look like if we really sought out the word of God and the Bible, began to kind of take it in and steep in it like a tea that will eventually stain us with its goodness? What would it look like if we really sought to kind of seek the advice of people around us rather than just kind of doing what we think is right but checking with the people that we respect who love the Lord and are seeking us along with him? What would it be like if we really engaged God in prayer and not just with our laundry list which is fine but giving him some time to speak back to us and like my grandson to write down what we think God is saying and then bring that to our friends compare it with what we've been reading about in the word of God what would it look like if we faithfully read the signs of the times in our lives and were able to respond to what seems to be being said to us by the way things are happening what might it be like if we bow down to Him and to let Him be number one in our life rather than serving that God that's as old as we are, the fake self that we think we have to do and operate out of? What would it be like if we let God show us our true selves? What would it be like if we opened our treasures to Him and allowed Him to take things that we don't need anyway, to give Him some time, give Him some money, Give him ourselves and the gifts that he's placed within us. This could be the year when we really come home to Jesus as the Lord of our life and the ruler of this crazy, mixed-up world so that we could change. We wouldn't be marked by such angst and anxiety of people whose lives are ruled by the fake self. We'd be people marked by an underlying joy that would sustain us, the joy of somebody who's a true worshiper and follower of Jesus. So as the new year approaches, all of us can allow him to tune us into true worshipers who can truly sing his song, not as we're going to do in just a few minutes, but also throughout the rest of our lives for the short years that remain of our lives here and experience the truth that if we are in Christ, there's a new creation, the old's passing away, and the new is on its way. Let's pray. So Lord, thank you so much for this great story. So familiar and yet so exciting, powerful. God, we wanna be like these people became. The worshipers that they represent for us in the story, but also the worshipers that we've known who are perhaps sitting right next to us. We wanna be like them. We wanna be like you, Lord. You, Jesus, are a true worship of your heavenly Father giving yourself your very life at his beck and call. So make it so, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Transform us into true worshipers of you. Amen.